I just love uh, I love the lifestyle. I love the fact that I'm, uh, you know, carrying on what my family has done for generations. I have you know, a lot of pride in doing what, you know, my granddad and uncles and fathers, you know, helped pioneer this industry. I have a real pride in continuing that on. This is Fishtails, a seafood podcast. I'm John Sussman. Although found throughout the tropical and subtropical waters of the world, from Chesapeake Bay on the east coast of the USA, across the Asia-Pacific to Morocco and Algiers, the blue swimmer crab, sometimes called the manna or sand crab, caught in Australian waters, and in particular in the Spencer Gulf of South Australia, is regarded as one of the finest. Growing to a maximum of a kilo, they have an extremely long, thin pincers to pry open scallops and snip the heads off prawns, as well as a unique pair of back legs that behave like paddles, making them one of the more mobile of the crab species. As they rarely live long after being removed from the water, they're also one of the few crabs can buy dead and uncooked. A distinctive, brilliant blue when raw, they turn a vibrant orange when cooked. With a luxurious diet of other shellfish, crustacea and mollusks, they're excellent and versatile eating crabs with a sweet, moist flesh that carries a bright iodine zing and a firm, flaking flesh. The Spencer Gulf crab fishery was formalised in the mid-1990s with tightly managed licensing and quotas, ensuring the sustainability of the fishery was assured well before even the concept of sustainability is a catch cry of modern fisheries. One family has been at the forefront of this fishery since its inception, the Barnes family of Port Broughton. The Barnes family name carries a special reputation amongst South Australian fishers for their exceptional and uncanny ability to find and catch crabs when others can't. Jared Barnes is the fourth generation of this remarkable fishing family and is carrying on the tradition of catching bluesome crabs in the Spencer Gulf. The first day of July is the opening of the commercial season for blue crab fishing in Spencer Gulf. And we find Jared and his crew at sea ready to start. Yeah, I'm uh, Jared Barnes. I'm a fourth generation uh, fisherman on the Spencer Gulf. Uh, I'm currently anchored at the moment in Upper Spencer Gulf. Well, I've always been surrounded by boats and fishing. You know, some of my earliest memories are sitting probably uh, down at Nana and Grandad, sitting around the uh, at a table, listening to you know Grandad, my father, my uncles all talk fishing. I've yeah, pretty much loved every every minute of it. Really, <laughs> hung on every word they said, and yeah. Port Broughton, it's a small town, hour and a half uh, north of Adelaide, but we're on Spencer's Gulf. Like, Spencer's Gulf's got four crab boats working out of it, uh, and three of them are Port Broughton, uh, yeah, and Barnes owned pretty much. Uh, basically, my, my grandfather, my uncles, my father were all uh, marine scale net fishermen. Uh, in 1984, 85, the top of the Gulf got closed down uh, to net fishing, and uh, part of it, I guess, it was sort of conversation about they had an option uh, like with other fishermen to take up a, uh, I guess you call it an experimental permit on blue crabs. Uh, and that's pretty much what it was, an experiment when they first started. Uh, they didn't have no pot design like now, anything. So very early on, they went from, you know, square pots, pyramid pots, uh, all basically trial and error to, you know, what we got today, the, the round pot that collapses that design, it's, it's used, you know, around Australia. You know fairly well uh yeah <laughs> my, my my earliest memory was uh going out fishing with uh dad i was I think i was four years of age 
and at the time he was wetlining for all snapper or pink snapper. I remember I was sitting at the front of the boat. Uh, I was watching Dad and the boys. The, the fish were biting. They were busy and just thinking, I wouldn't mind having a go at this. So I went up to Dad and said, hey, can I have a go? And, and he was obviously pretty busy at the time. He said, yeah, you can, but you've got to sort that yourself. Uh, I remember finding an old handline up the front of the boat, baiting it up and, and chucking it in the water. And as soon as that uh, line hit the bottom, I had a big fish on. And I think from that moment on, I was hooked on fishing, whether it be long lining, crab fishing, netting with my cousins. I just loved it from that point on. Despite a fair probability that Jared would find himself in the family business, there are many stories of fishing families losing next generations to the big city lights and fields of finance, media and technology. There is a certain type of person, however, for whom the thrill of the hunt for a crab or a fish can never be replaced by a desk or computer. Between a natural love of the water, a deep family history in fishing and greater commercial prospects, Perhaps it was inevitable that the barn's legacy would remain in the blue crab fishery. Uh, well, basically it all started pretty much the day I turned uh, 15, I, I left school <laughs> and I started working on a, like a marine scale boat at the time. Uh, by the time I was 18, I started skippering the old man pretty much threw the keys at me and said, well, if you think you know it all, here's your chance. Uh, <laughs> my first lesson was <laughs> I didn't know it all. <laughs> but nonetheless, it turned out all right. Um, so I did that for a couple of years, up and down Spencer's Gulf. By the time I was 24, uh, along with my uh, older cousin, we were fishing anywhere between the upper Spencer Gulf right down to Robe in the southeast. So, and anywhere in between, we were covering, you know, a fair bit of ground, really. Um, come 2017, uh, the writing was on the wall with the marine scale, especially the snapper in South Australia. Uh, the restrictions, and we were pretty much one year away from the, the three-year ban at the time. So... I actually jumped over and started skippering one of our crab boats. We have uh, two Spencer Golf crab boats. And, uh, yeah, ever since then, just everything's been all things blue crab, basically. Blue summer crabs live in a wide range of water and seagrass habitats and on both sandy and muddy seabeds from the intertidal zone to at least 50 metres in depth. Blue summer crabs are generally distinguished by the fact that their last pair of legs are modified as swimming paddles. They're active swimmers, but when inactive, they bury themselves deep in the seagrasses and sediment of their preferred habitat, leaving only their eyes, antennae and gill openings exposed. Juvenile crabs occur in mangrove creeks and mudflats for eight to 12 months, by which time they attain a size of around about 80 to 100 mil shell width. Within the Spencer Gulf region of South Australia, there is a distinct seasonal pattern of adult crab movements into shallow inshore waters during the warmer months of September to April and out in the deeper offshore waters during the colder months of July to September. For crabs mainly, it's just, it's that perfect sort of natural habitat. The bottom, it's almost, we have your, your mangroves uh, right through to your deeper 20 metre stuff. It's sandy, weedy bottom. Uh, the crabs just seem to really, really thrive on it, really, and great temperature for it. I'm not sure why, but a lot of people tell us that the crabs in the, from the southern part of Australia taste a lot better. <laughs> it might be a slightly cooler water temperature, but yeah, we'll, we'll go with that. Uh, well, the blue swimmer crab is found in uh, waters from, you know, pretty much ankle depth right through to 30 metres uh, in all times of the year, basically. Oh, the, the fact that, you know, how sustainable the fishery is is probably my favourite thing. It's probably one of the most stable fisheries there is. Uh, would be my favourite. Um, 
I love, I do love chasing them. You know, we we always tend to catch our quota one way or another. But it, it chasing them and hunting was probably probably the favourite bit into deeper waters, especially. Uh, you just the crab itself when you get the nice big meaty ones. I, I don't think you can really beat it, to be honest with you. Some people say it's better than some people say it's better than a crayfish. <laughs> Today, for instance, and we know just been this time of year, we've gone and shot most of our gear in uh, you know from 19 meters through to about 25. As the weather warms up, you will find they will you gradually go shallower and shallower, and that's why people always say, or the recreation always say they catch them with the months of R because it's generally warmer. Um, because that, that's why by that time they've hit the shallow water. But at the moment, we'll just try to find what depth they are and then we'll work that depth. With only six months to catch their quota for the year, it's an imperative that both the vessel and the crew are well prepared and in best condition to maximise their time at sea. A deep knowledge of the environment, the weather, the water and the crabs is vital for Jared to lead his crew to a successful season. Today is probably our easiest day because we've just, we've, you know, come out, steamed up to the grounds and, and shot the gear off and then we you pretty much dropped the pick. But um, no, nah, leading up to the season we had a we did a yeah, I could guess you call it a pretty big off season on the boat. We did a lot of work, moving ice machines, cutting cutting ice boxes out, uh, redoing a few decks, we even put a, a new kitchen this year. So it's been a big build up to it. I sort of feel like we've been just as busy as when we're fishing, but it's a it's a strange feeling. Looking forward to it and keen, but I know, you know, for the next six months, what it sort of entails. Oh, well, today basically it was opening day, and our quota resets tomorrow. So we uh, we left Broughton before daylight. On the way out, the boys will do the baits. Um, we use pilchard and salmon a mix. Uh, on this boat, we have 150 pots. Uh, each pot is a 1.7 meters diameter, and uh, we generally run the gear in anywhere between five to eight hours, depending on weather and conditions. Um, once we get out there, each each float line has uh, two pots on it. So you have a float line, it will come down to your first pot. Then there's about 25 fathom and there's a second pot, and we actually call them doubles or sets. Um, we'll get under the gear. The first pot will come up. Uh, one decky or one crew member will be the shaker for the day, so he will shake all the crabs out of the pot into a uh, a cold water, not not really a slurry, but we try to keep the water at six degrees. Uh, while he's doing that, another crew member will bait the pot, and then the second pot comes up, and that same thing happens. That the crabs get sh- uh, shook into that water. Either I tell the boys to leave the that set on the boat, or go back in the water, depending on what's in it. Uh, so if, that, if we're shooting it back off, it goes straight back, it was rebated and shot back in the water. Them crabs that have gone into that, that cold water, they come out generally within 30 seconds and they grade it out. Anything that's, you know, undersized or uh, pregnant female or missing legs goes straight back into, you know, the, the water to survive. Anything that's uh, kept is gone straight into to slurry. Uh, so that happens. We have, yeah, 75 sets basically. That happens uh, repeatedly for the rest of the day. Then crabs in the slurry, once they're down to uh, they were the core temperatures down, they are put up onto the grading table. We have uh, about six or seven different grades. Uh, grades in South Australia start at B and go through to you know roughly a G, male and female. Um, everything's sort of iced on board, weighed on board with motion sensor scales. Uh, and depending on the markets, a certain uh, percentage is always cooked. We're finding each year that uh, green 
or the raw market is sort of getting better and we're, we're cooking less and less, which is probably a good thing. The ones that were cooking are kept in ice water, probably definitely the longest. Um, and once they've been pretty much killed right off, uh, then they go in straight into a boiling water, seawater. We cook up 100 kilo at a time. The crabs come back with the boil, then they're cooked for another 10 minutes and then they're pulled out and they're brought back to temperature just with seawater running through them. The bluesmer crab has for a long time been the value option in the world of crabs. Whilst it doesn't have the reputation of the mighty mud crab or the exotic appearance of the king crab or spanner crab, it is the delicious meat which has become more recognised of recent times with an awakening of awareness by both chefs and consumers of how delicious and special it is. You know, one of the biggest things with the, with getting the crab industry off the ground is sort of when they, when granddad and dad and um, uncles first started fishing, they actually catching them wasn't an issue. That was never a problem. You know, that come quite easy, but selling them was, was you know, the, the struggle. I think they were, I was talking to dad yesterday, they were selling in Safco in Adelaide and they'd get a dollar eighty a kilo, which was, uh, which was fine, but as soon as they put any amounts in, they just they dropped down to fifty cents. It wasn't until um, you know Nana and Granddad, I think they caught a bus over to Sydney in '88, maybe um, at the time, and they were struggling. And they met some buyers, seen how the Sydney fish market worked, and then it went, went from there. I think that, you know they first started getting two fifty over there, and, and you could sell decent some decent amounts. And within a year, it nearly doubled. So Sydney fish market plays, you know, a really you know, it's even a special class, I guess. Um, so a lot of our fish goes there. Now we do Melbourne and Adelaide is sort of taking off more and more each year with the blue crab. Uh, definitely. And, and that's where social media now and the platform, what my wife does there is sort of, it's showing us where our seafood's ending up as well, which is great to see. And we're even having people who have restaurants message us and say we've brought it and uh, people who go to Sydney fish market say they've eaten it. It's, it, it's great to see now because few years back you know you'd send it away and it was good but you just didn't know what happened to it so it's yeah it's really come a long way through social media <laughs> well <laughs> i generally get the state <laughs> um yeah i guess there's, there's some sense of pride in it it's good to know that people are enjoying it a fisherman's life isn't as calm and serene as some might think. In fact, it usually involves long hours, back-breaking work, searing heat or torrential rain, and sometimes even extreme danger. Living and working together for weeks at a time can put extra pressure on the working environment, but just like a sporting team, the captain needs to motivate, inspire and command in equal measure to maintain the balance and ultimately the success of the fishing trip. Uh, so there's myself and three crew. Yeah, it's interesting at times. Um, I know I'm, I'm 36, but the boys I'm with are a fair bit younger. So at times it's it's quite interesting hearing you know some of the things they come up with and what's going on in their lives. <laughs> it's a bit of a laugh, but so yeah, it's um, oh I've got a family at home which you miss uh, and that. But when you're fishing, you're fishing, I guess. Both our boats will have it at their own account at the supermarket. Um, we put we write a list out on the way in, and I generally send it through to my wife, and she's she's good. She does the she does the shopping for us, and uh, then it gets dividedly uh, evenly throughout the crew at the end of the month, basically. That way, it works out better. That way, you're not doubling up on milk. 
I don't cook and the boys don't want me to cook. <laughs> I can make a coffee, that's about it. But we uh, at, our lunches are pretty much on the go. Um, but our teas range from just the usual boat meal, spaghetti, roast, schnitzels, burgers, fish, anything really. We, we, we do eat pretty well, so there's nothing wrong with the way we eat. The thrill of the hunt for wild seafood with the promise of a good return is often the elixir to terrible conditions, tiredness, and even the distractions of family life. Commercial fishing is a roller coaster of both emotions and commercial success. The better prepared and more focused the captain and crew are, the more likely they are to have a good catch and ultimately a good day. Oh, a good day in the water is definitely catch. I mean, you can work 30 knots of wind and it'd be, you know, horrible, but if you catch, if you have 900 a ton, yeah, you're happy either way. <laughs> but uh, it, generally, generally throughout the year, uh, like our quota this year would just be just over 100 a ton. If we average six, just over 600 kilo a day, that's about normal, normal rate for us. Every now and then we will have weed move through the gear, and that will, you know, that means a long day ahead of you, really. <laughs> so you, you're not only trying to get your, your gear back, but then you can't put it back there, so you've got to move it all. So them days can sometimes turn into 14, 15 hours, easy enough, plus the rest. The whole post COVID world is facing a new set of challenges, with many in food service and retail heard to be complaining of running a business in an urban environment. Imagine then how these challenges are manifested in a wild catch seafood operation. The shortages of staff, increases in costs from fuel to food, the ever-growing demands and regulations to comply with the laws and ethics of commercial fishing are multiplied by comparison to any land-based businesses for those working at sea. Well, fuel at the moment is definitely playing on our mind. <laughs> but uh, as our boats got bigger, that actually allowed us to stay, stay out at sea. So that has sort of helped with the cost. When it was a 40-foot boat and no ice machine, you had to pretty much do a day trip. So, um, and that limited you to the grounds you could fish as well. Uh, so, in that aspect, it, you know, staying out and going bigger has sort of definitely helped in that way. Oh, it's definitely hard, especially at the moment. But I think every every industry is finding that we're fairly fortunate. We've had a, a low turnover in the last 10 years, so we are lucky. But we're definitely seeing a lack of younger skippers come through that's that's for sure which we would we would like to see a few more step up get their skippers ticket and and start taking the boat here and there the quality and consistency of the blues from the crab catches in spencer gulf is testimony to the success of the long-term vision and management of both the fishers and the fisheries managers of the spencer gulf crab fishery despite the ever-increasing challenges the future of the fishery is both exciting and an inspiration ah oh. It's absolutely brilliant, I think. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it has to be one of the most sustainable fisheries I've ever seen. Oh, it'd probably be one of the fisheries that the future's looking pretty bright in, um, I would say. You know, when the initial quota came out in 96 across the, uh, the two zones, which, which is Spencer Gulf and Gulf St. Vincent, the, the, the TAC was uh, 520 tonnes. Uh, this year we're looking at you know just over 700, and that's based on our surveys with Sardi on board. And so I think I think the crab fishery is one of the the few shining stars at the moment for sure. Pride is an emotional response or attitude to something with an intimate connection to oneself, due to its perceived value. This may be related to one's own abilities or achievements, positive characteristics of friends or family. For Jared Barnes, his pride is both obvious and justified. 
A family history of proud professional fishermen whose deep love of their waters and their catch is deeply embedded in their DNA. I just love, uh, I love the lifestyle. I love the fact that I'm, uh, you know, carrying on what my family has done for generations. I have you know, a lot of pride in doing what, you know, my granddad and uncles and fathers, you know, helped pioneer this industry. I have a real pride in continuing that on. I'd like to think I've got a few more years in me yet on the boat. <laughs> That'd be a start. But, um, yeah, just keep just keep developing and going along. Um, you know, it'd be nice for a couple of new markets to, to break into here and there, but we definitely want to uh, keep the domestic market, um, especially after seeing what happened with COVID and things like that. The world of commercial fishing is facing many challenges. Some might say that the demands outweigh the benefits. However, it's hard not to be inspired listening to Jared Barnes, who not only with a family history, but as an Ocean Watch Master Fisherman graduate, is constantly chasing to improve what he does, how he does it, and when he does it, and to get the recognition for his beloved Bluesome Crab. It is next generation fishers like Jared Barnes that all Australian consumers should be really proud of. This is Fishtales, a seafood podcast. A Deep in the Weeds production, I'm John Sussman. Follow us on Instagram at Fishtales Seafood Podcast or email us at fishtalespodcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay tuned for more tales from beneath the surface of the seafood world every Friday on your podcast app.